This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. The story of the Green Book is critically important and a story we absolutely felt we had to bring to our listeners. For preservationists, Green Book sites are also often vivid physical reminders of our past that are piled high with challenges for reuse. Elevating, interpreting, preserving, and retelling the story of this book and its impact on America makes for an ideal PreserveCast conversation. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're thrilled to be talking with Candace Taylor, who is an award-winning author, photographer, and cultural documentarian, and is also, of course, the author of Overground Railroad, The Green Book, and The Roots of Black Travel in America. Um, and before we dive into that, which is just a fascinating topic um, and something you know near and dear to my heart and, and projects that we're working on here in Maryland... Um, we, we love, as everybody who listens knows, to get to know our guests and a little bit about their background. So um, what's your story? Uh, you obviously, you have a real passion for history. Um, and uh, what was your background, your upbringing? What got you interested in all of this? Yes, I started doing the Green Book research in about 2013. But before that, you know, I, I have a master's degree in visual criticism and my undergraduate degrees in painting and drawing. So I've been an artist all my life. Um, and I really didn't start writing until I went to grad school. My first book was called Counterculture. It was in the American Diner Waitress. And um, I was always interested in different subcultures, but also how race, class, and gender was kind of operating in, in modern society through the lens of these old neighborhoods, these old established, you know, restaurants that had been around forever. And so I, I found myself in a lot of um, older communities. And when I, and I did a project on hair beauty shop culture with the Library of Congress. I interviewed um, hairstylists from all over the country doing, um, it, serving different ethnicities from Appalachian to African-American to Orthodox Jewish communities, uh, LGBTQ communities, just really, um, so I found myself in so many different pockets throughout America, and I've been doing this work for, you know, at that time, at least over 13 years, and had been to so many different parts of America, but when I learned about the Green Book, and because I'm a Black woman, and I'd been traveling so much throughout the United States, um, I was commissioned to do a book on Route 66, and I realized in early in my research that half the counties on Route 66 were sundown towns, which were meant, meant they were all white communities and they were all white on purpose. Um, I just thought, my God, how did black people travel Route 66? And a series of questions led me to the Green Book. Um, and I never knew such a thing had existed. This was about, like I said, 2013. I didn't realize... Um, at that time, very few, even historians and academia, knew that there was a Green Book. Um, a man named Calvin Ramsey had a couple of articles out in the New York Times. He was doing early research on the Green Books. Um, but it was still all very new and exciting. And, um, and that was, at that moment, I thought, this is my next book. This is my next project. And that's how I stumbled into it. And I guess growing up, where, did you always have a fascination with history? Where, where did you, I don't know if you mentioned, where did you grow up? Oh, I grew up in, well, I, 
I've lived so many places. I was born in Gary, Indiana. Um, only lived there till I was about four. And then we moved to Houston, Texas. Um, and I was there till I was about 10. And growing up at that age in Houston um, with a single mom um, was very, uh, it was challenging in the way that I saw race. You know, I finally, I, that was the first time I learned that I was black and, uh, and I, it was really defining moment because my elementary school, um, I was being targeted, you know, by my teachers, not even really the kids um, so much, although my sister was called the N-word pretty much daily. Um, and she was a teenager working in a pizza shop. But I um, was constantly being put in the B-level reading courses. My mother taught me how to read and write before I even went to kindergarten. So we had school every day. And even though she was a single, I mean, we, she, education was extremely important and she knew I was smart and she knew I was well-trained. And, but the school was holding me back into these kind of uh, mid-level coursework and no black kids were in the A-level reading courses. And long story short, my mom called this teacher out and the teacher started crying and, and basically admitted um, that that was the case. And um, my mom pulled me out of that school and we moved to Ohio and I skipped from the third grade to the fifth grade when I got to Ohio. Um, so had I stayed in Texas, I probably wouldn't have been an author. I, I may have had a very different course of, of my life had maybe taken a different course because um, it was really the support of not just my family, but of the school system that really shaped, I think, you know, and gave me opportunities, even though we didn't have money, that I could uh, go to college and become um, whatever I wanted to be. So, yeah, so Texas really shaped my, my upbringing. And also it was the first place I saw a chain gang um, of black uh, men chained up in a field who were, and I asked my mother, and we were in Texas, and I said, why are all these men chained up in a field? And she said, well, because they're prisoners. And I said, well, why are they all black? And she couldn't answer that. You know, she couldn't explain institutional racism to me. I was seven at the time. Um, but yeah, those early years really did, you know, I guess that was the inquisitive um, child who just saw that racism was a factor and that this was wrong, that never left me. So yeah, those two things really followed me throughout my life. And then I lived in Ohio till I was a teenager and then moved away. So before we jump into your book, um, and, and you, you, you mentioned sort of how you got into this and interest in the green book and, and, but, but for people listening, we have listeners not only across the country, but really even across the world. So what was the green book? Um, when was it published? And then maybe we'll get into how they identified sites and things like that. But, but what was it? When was it published? Um, you know, what are the basics of it? The green book was a travel guide that was published for black people during the Jim Crow era. And it, started publication in 1936 and stayed in publication through 1967. Uh, it did take a couple of years off during the war. And there's a couple of editions that we just don't have. We don't know if it was published in 65, uh, for instance. Um, but for the most part, it was an annually published 
travel guide. And it wasn't the only one, however. There were other Black traveler guides uh, that were published, and, and the Green Book wasn't the first one. The first Black Traveler's Guide was Hackley and Harrison's in 1930. Um, and it was only published for a year. Um, and then there were no others until the Green Book, which was in 1936. But um, the Green Book was so popular because it was, first of all, it, it just was serving this incredible need um, that hadn't been, that you know, no one else had a solution for. Um, but it was also distributed by SO gas stations. Um, it had an incredibly innovative marketing system that got it out to people um, throughout the country. I can talk more about that later if you want. But, you know, the Green Book really was the most, the longest running. And uh, by 1962, there were over 2 million people using the Green Book. So it was clearly the most popular. And and so talk about the publishers and, and how did they identify these sites? I mean, you know, now, I mean, it's, we're so spoiled just just with travel. Let's take race and ethnicity and everything out of it just for a second. Like we're just spoiled with travel. Like I even remember being a kid. And, you know, your parents would get like the AAA book, and like you know they'd have to figure out like oh well, maybe this would be the right hotel or whatever. And now you just jump online, and it's just you know it's just second nature. But how on earth would you put together a book like this? With I mean, did they have to send people into the field? How did that work? Yes. I mean, we are spoiled. And, you know, Victor Green, what he, Victor Green was a man who created the Green Book and he was a postal worker and he lived in Harlem, New York. And in 1935, when he was working on the Green Book, his first edition, uh, there was a major riot here in Harlem. I live in Harlem. And um, he really did Again, he was solving an immediate problem within his community. The first editions of the Green Book were Harlem-based. Um, we don't even, we've never seen a 1936 copy. We do know it exists. But from what we can tell, it was only 10 pages, and it was more like a zine. It was more like a local, um, uh, probably on, you know, not, it wasn't a, professionally published, you know, it was by 1940, he had found actual publishers that were, you know, were, that were using letterpress and using actual publishing equipment and, and marketing and all of that came much later. But in the very beginning, it was very, um, it was just a roots-based, you know, community-based um, guide that was necessary because despite the fact that we think the Harlem Renaissance, you know, that Harlem was this mecca of Black, um, um, celebration of Black culture, and there were Black people who could just kind of this place where they could be and feel, you know, welcome. That wasn't really the case in Harlem. I mean, Harlem was still highly, you know, there were large Im uh, immigrant community here, you know, Irish and Italians. And for the most of the uh, 30s, there were definitely, even 125th Street, which is a major thoroughfare, um, several, nearly half of all the businesses on 125th Street, um, Black people either couldn't go in or there were rules about where they could be in certain theaters. Um, you still needed a guide to navigate even your own neighborhood. So it started very small and then it grew very quickly because as I said, it was serving this critical need um, throughout the country. So by 19... 
39, it was in every state east of the Mississippi River. And yes, the way that he did that, he did have people who, um, Green Book representatives, who would go out and go to these who were traveling and they would report back and say, you know, this is a place where you can go. Thankfully, it, well, I won't say it's a double-edged sword. I mean, the country was so segregated racially that job wasn't as hard as you would think because there were just so many pockets of black communities because they literally were not allowed to be in the white areas of town. So a lot of representatives would go to these black areas of town. Now, also, Victor Green was a postal worker, so he was a uh, listed in the Postal Workers Union, and even within the postal workers system, it was segregated. So there was a black postal workers union throughout the country, so he would connect with them and say, you know, I know you can go on your beat in your town where there was only black businesses and black communities, and so they would bring the green books with them or at least tell business owners that there is such a thing and get them to solicit, you know, solicit their um, participation. So it grew in a very organic way. Um, you know, again, Victor Green had, I think, the, the reach of the postal service, which I think really helped facilitate the growth of the green book so quickly. But there were all these other factors working as well. Um, that he that he used and uh, and it was an organic process but when he finally did get the publisher that he wanted um, and I cover this in the book it made a big difference um, in the design and the style and then it became a brand and uh, it just grew from there so was there anything created like this for other ethnic groups is there is this singular in its history was there I'm guessing there must have been something like this for LGBTQ, but I don't know if it was at the same level. Did you look into that at all? I looked into that a little bit. I mean, we do know that Victor Green had a Jewish friend um, who was traveling up north to the Borscht Belt, um, and he used a kosher guide to travel um, to even just, again, even within upstate New York and within New York where he felt more comfortable having this kosher guide. And so we do believe that he was, Victor Green was influenced by him when he was starting the Green Book. He thought, you know, this would be good for us because he was, again, living in Harlem. His wife, Alma Duke Green, lived in Virginia, in Richmond, Virginia. So he was driving her home pretty regularly. And those trips, you know, I'm sure were pretty harrowing. His brother-in-law was a musician, a really you know, very accomplished musician. Um, and I'm sure within that world, you know, there were always stories about how difficult it was to be a traveling black musician um, and to find services. So yes, there were, so we do, you know, there were kosher guides that helped Jewish uh, communities. Um, and there were LGBTQ uh, guides that we know of in the 50s and 60s. Um, I don't know of any in the 30s. Um, and I know there was a scholar who was looking into that, and it would be interesting to know if he found anything that was earlier. But the Green Book, again, was so unique because it was a very critical time and place in terms of the great, the second wave of the Great Migration was underway. There were so many, one and a half million 
Black Southerners were leaving, were fleeing racial terror in the South and heading North. Um, there were a lot of Black people on the move at this time, whereas, again, with the other populations, whether they were Jewish or, or um, LGBT, you know, they, it was still really much more about vacation and about access to doing things. But the Green Book was so critical because a lot of migrant families were using it. Um, there were a lot of middle-class Black folks as well who wanted to take vacation, but it was also serving this other critical need, and there were lynchings in the South. You know, there, was, there, was real, there were real reasons why people needed to be on the run. And when you look at train travel, um, that wasn't pleasant for Black people either. And the idea of the car was such a symbol of freedom for all Americans, but even more so for Black Americans, because it shielded them from the segregated spaces of the streetcars and the humiliation of having to ride in a train and be covered in soot because the only cars you could sit in were the ones right behind the caboose. And, you know, if you just had your car, you were felt so much more free and, and, um, and just hopeful about life. Um, So the green book provided that as well. I think that's a really important point because I think a lot of people think of it more as like a, a vacation guide almost. And I think it, that's, that's an important piece there too about the great migration that I think is, is probably often overlooked is that this wasn't just, I mean, it could, and it oftentimes was used for, for that, like you said, like leisure travel, but it was also about being able to safely get around as you're moving and migrating and things like that, which is, um, you know, makes it even more powerful. So you talk in the book about people who were brave enough to put themselves in the book, um, in the green book, that is. So do you have some examples of that? Like, I mean, obviously there are places run by African-Americans, but then there's places run by Caucasians and, and, and others who were willing to be in the book. Are, Are there examples of bravery that sort of stand out that, that impressed you or surprised you? Yes, um, you know, and this was a factor because, as you pointed out early earlier, you know, it was not. First of all, how did he find these places to participate? And again, finding black business owners was part of the networking that he had access to. But getting white business owners to participate was very difficult, and we see that in you know, definitely in other parts of the country, the East Coast, especially the Northeast, because the cities were so dense and there were more urban kind of cities, you know, there were cities, they were just not these big rural expanses. And you'll see throughout the country, I've cataloged over 10,000 green book sites. um, And most of them are clustered in, you know, cities and some of the, like the whole state of Michigan, really 90% of the green book sites are in Detroit you were out of luck in most other parts of the state. Um, And there would be tourist homes. There were these places that were like the first Airbnbs, right? Um, That, uh, you know, single, mostly widowed women um, would run these tourist homes and they were just a home with a bed and a warm meal. Again, for people who were not, they were less expensive as well. Um, So people maybe who were migrating would rely on tourist homes but the expansiveness of how these places um, really provided, there were different tools in the green book that people could use given their circumstances. But 
when it got to the point where Victor Green wanted to bring in, you know, if you were in the middle of North Dakota, where would you go? And he, re, he prints some of the letters um, of inquiries where he's trying to get people in these other states to participate. And he reprints the letters that have come back to him explaining why they can't do it. And it's, you know, it's embarrassing and it, it, it makes you cringe because they're just like, well, you know, we don't have, it would just be, you know, a curiosity for Negroes to be in this area. And I don't want to take, you know, business, I don't want to alienate the white customers. So, you know, even though, you know, we're not, they wouldn't say racist, but say, even though there's no prejudice here, um, we just don't feel comfortable, you know, doing that. And um, I, you know, I reprint some of these letters in my book. And so you can see him struggling. Um, so yeah, it took courage for uh, white folks, especially um, in the 40s and the 50s. Now, by the time the late 50s, after Brown versus Board of Education happens in 54, and, you know, the really the most of America is getting a sense of like the tides are going to turn, whether some people want them to or not. They knew it was on the horizon. It was just a matter of when. Um, and of course, you know, 1964 is when the Civil Rights Act is passed. And it's, you know, we have a law now stating that there has to be integration. But from that spot, you find a lot of the more larger, like Brooks Brothers and Macy's and um, the Waldorf Astoria and fancy, you know, the Biltmore in Los Angeles and the Drake in Chicago and these big, huge, you know, hotels that were opulent are in the Green Book. And those are in the later editions and, you know, the 60s. Um, but places like Charlie's um, in on the south end of Boston um, was in the Green Book um, earlier than that. And it was white and a very white, um, historically uh, difficult place for black folks to live and be. Um, this community has been notorious for racism, um, but Charlie's was there and it literally was below the um, Porter's Union. Um, and Charlie, the um, man who ran it, was a Greek immigrant and he really um, opened his doors to all kinds of people and didn't care what, you know, the white locals who were opposed to it. He didn't care what they thought. Um, people like Sammy Davis Jr. went to this place. A lot of black musicians in Boston would go there after hours, after their gigs. And it became a real, um, you know, a hot spot. But also it was, it was truly integrated. And there are examples of that. And you can tell, um, especially in that community in Boston, that that was a risk. And he was willing to um, offend whoever to do the right thing. Well, that might be a good place to take a quick break um, and then come back. And, you know, I think you, you mentioned doing this cataloging of sites. And maybe we can talk a little bit about the preservation of these sites. Um, and, and how we tell these stories and protect these stories uh, in the future. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. This week's PreserveCast is sponsored by Historic Roofing. Historic Roofing is your old house specialist. They're a small, family-run company of master craftsmen providing clients with consultations and expertise in restoration, maintenance, and repair in the lost arts and crafts of slate, tile, and architectural metal roofing since 1990. 
Historic roofing has saved many prominent buildings in the Washington metropolitan area. To learn more about Historic Roofing's many services, visit historicroofingcompany.com or better yet, give us a call at 410-741-0572. They'd love to discuss the history of your building and what its history holds. This week's episode of PreserveCast is sponsored by Washington County, Maryland, a destination for your next staycation. The county is famous for the Antietam Battlefield and Civil War sites and a place to experience the 50th anniversary of the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal National Historical Park. Washington County is also home to trails for hiking and biking, canoeing, arts and culture, and many locally owned restaurants and vineyards. To learn more, head to visithagerstown.com. Maryland, open for historic gateways. Before we get back to the episode, we're pleased to offer our listeners a 10% off discount on all Oliver Pluff teas, toddies, cacaos, and coffees. Just use the code PRESERVECAST at checkout. That's P-R-E-S-E-R-V-E-C-A-S-T, PRESERVECAST, at checkout, over at OliverPluff.com. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Uh, today, we're thrilled to continue our conversation with Candidacy Taylor. Um, and we're talking about uh, her work documenting the Green Book and her work in writing uh, a book called Overground Railroad, The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America. Uh, and before we took the break, uh, we were talking talking about the history of the Green Book, how it all came about, her work in writing this book, um, sort of the bravery associated with uh, the people who were willing to stick their necks out and be listed and and how this evolved over time. Um, and, you know, you mentioned, and, and it might be interesting to talk about this, you know, has there ever been this nationwide survey of sites? I know here in Maryland and other states, um, there's been sort of um, state-level um, documentation, but um, you mentioned you, you documented quite a few of them. Um, talk to us about the preservation of these sites and... Um, you know, what, what we know about them. Right. Uh, that's, you know, something I've been working on. I, and I'm not, I mean, pretty much every day since I started this work in 2013, when I first started this project, Wikipedia, and I'm not recommending Wikipedia as a source, um, just, you know, reliable source, but you know, Wikipedia said we had 1500 green book sites. And when I went to the Schomburg Center, um, I got a fellowship in 2016. They have the largest number of green books, and you can definitely use them as a trusted source. Um, they have digitized all the green books that they have. They have the largest collection in the world. I believe they have 24 editions now. Um, and they're, but when I started this project, they were not digitized. We only knew that there were two green, most historians and educators had access to two green books. And that's why Wikipedia said there were 1,500. Um, now we find that there's 24 of them at least. And I've cataloged, like I said, over 10,000 sites compared to 1,500. So of those sites, yes, I have a huge database where, you know, and I've, tra I've traveled to over 5,000 of these sites. Um, to write the book and to do the exhibition, I really wanted to get a sense of the communities, the state of the communities now and what they were like then um, and looking at those comparisons. But it's a, it's a tragic reality that, you know, we've lost 
at least 80% of them are gone. Um, and about three to 5% are still operating. So many were lost for many different reasons. A big factor was urban renewal. Um, I would go to, on the road, I would, I was scouting about 30 sites a day. Um, I was trying to do as much as I could before I had to just sit down to write the book. And I would see that maybe 20 of these sites were gone. They were replaced by a freeway. And I saw that over and over again in pretty much every major city. Um, and that's been, that was a huge factor. It really decimated black communities. Um, it was considered quote unquote progress at the time. Um, and these freeways really just were, um, were placed in, in vulnerable communities and destroyed them. It was really the beginning of the end. So you have urban renewal happening in the 50s, 40s to 50s. You have redlining happening, right? So these Black folks were legally bound um, to be in particular areas. And then when integration happens, you see things are loosening up. Again, people are able to move around more, um, not only to go on vacation, but Black folks could, middle-class Black people could leave these segregated communities and live in suburbs. Not always. That's been, that's still a process. Redlining is still part of what we deal with in this country, but things were loosening up incredibly. And so what happened was a lot of Black people who could say never were allowed to go to the French Quarter to go to the clubs and frequent those, you know, establishments. When they could, they did. And they left the, these green book businesses that had been thriving because they literally had a captive audience. Black people couldn't go anywhere else. So when they could, they did. And the end result and the casualty of that was these, these sites. And so by the 60s and to today, some had just been literally falling apart. They had just been abandoned for decades. They were still standing, but they, they had trees growing out of them like the Hampton House um, in Miami, which has now been, has gone undergone like a $10 million renovation. And, you know, is featured in the One Night Miami um, movie that was just released. But, you know, now it's beautiful. It's been restored back into its glory of this mid-century modern building. It's, it's stunning. Um, so we have examples of that, but most of them, you know, we've lost. Yeah, and we've seen it here in Maryland. I mean, I, I I was telling you before we started the interview that we're working in a in a community in Hagerstown, Maryland, a neighborhood called the Jonathan Street community, and pretty much all the Green Book sites there um, have been demolished, and it has to do with um, you know redlining essentially and um, changes in zoning. Uh, they basically removed um, any commercial zoning, so um, there was no way to to kind of continue on, um, black entrepreneurism. So there's just all of these barriers, but it, it's just, it seems so critically important to, to document them, get them all into one place. Um, you know, have this, this, this database of it all. Is there, is there anything like that? Is there anything in the works or is there anything that well, I have, can look I for? have one and believe me, so many people want my database. <laughs> but it's, it's like, uh, no, you can't have it. Um, because it's proprietary, it's but it's taken me literally years to do. I'm about 95% done with it. I haven't, I've done all of the green books and, um, there's a section in the end that has the uh, vacation rentals and then there's the international sites. 
Um, so, so what are you going to do with it? Is it eventually going to be published? Um, if, well, literally, I mean, I, that I, I do have a map that I have, um, completed with the, with National Geographic. And so they, that is, my green book sites are on that map. So yes, you can see them on this map, but I will never just give away my database because it's been too many years of of work. Um, Unless, you know, there's a, and I, and I don't even know, I mean, you know, a major institution asked me, if they could buy it off of me. And I said, you can't afford it Um, because I can't in good faith. I mean, I do quote unquote share a lot of things, but this is how I make a living. And it is the work that, you know, I have done every day since 2013. Um, So it is mine to do other projects with. I'm developing a mobile app. Um, like I said, I did this digital interactive app map with National Geographic. Um, but um, no, I'm not going to just hand it over to to institutions who have staff who could make their own or come to me and pay me for it, you know. Um, right. Well, I'm, maybe that's a good place to kind of talk about what you're working on next. So you mentioned a mobile app. What's what's in the what's in the future for you? Uh, the mobile app is basically under, we have the prototype completed and I hope to have that out by next year, early next year. Um, and it will, it doesn't just have green book sites, but it's also tracing everything from lynching sites to modern day, um, mass incarcerations, you know, statistical data, whether it's private and federal prisons. Um, It also includes um, socioeconomic data sets that factor into why we have not really evolved into the country that we say we are or that we want to be. Um, So it's tracing all of those layers of history, but also in real time because you can curate your own experience, whether you want to see, you know, Black-owned businesses um, today that you can frequent um, or historic green book sites, or if you're driving across country, sundown towns are also part of this. So, you know, it'll pop up on your screen and say, oh, you've entered what was once a sundown town. So it really kind of gives you an example of how this, you know, the layers of our history are, um, are still living with us. Um, and also how much things have changed in some ways, whether these places are, you know, they look so different. Um, these neighborhoods look so different than they, than they were. And, um, gentrification is a real thing. That's also incredibly destructive to, uh, black communities and we're losing our green book sites to that as well. So, yeah, so the mobile app will be a great tool for that. And that's how this you know, this history, like I don't want to sit on all this data and not share it, but I find different platforms that I think will make it more useful. It's fascinating. We'll have to have you back once that that's out because that, that seems like a, uh, you know, just a fantastic project to learn more about. So if people want to learn more about you or stay up to date about that and get updates when the app comes out or you got a new book or they want to pick up 
previous books or documentaries, where can they do all that? Where, where can they find you? Uh, TaylorMadeCulture.com is my website. And if you go to the Overground Railroad tab, you'll find out more about that. Um, there's also uh, an exhibition that is, I'm the curator and content specialist for an exhibition with the Smithsonian uh, Institution Traveling Exhibition Service. It goes under the acronym of SITES. And that exhibition is at the National Civil Rights Museum right now, and it will be touring the United States through 2024. Um, the next venue will be the Mosaic Templars um, Museum, which is in Little Rock, Arkansas. So that's something you can follow as well. But if you sign my guest book um, at the bottom of the uh, Overground Railroad page on my website, um, I can give you updates and I send them out maybe three or four times a year. Fantastic. And before we go, um, the the most difficult question we normally ask anyone who comes on this uh, podcast, which is uh, what's your favorite historic place or site? Oh yeah, that is hard because they're like your children, right? I mean, I don't have children, but it, yes, I fall in love with sites and then they change um, every day. But I, can I name one that's not actually, does it have to still be standing? No, no, it can be anything. Okay. Um, well, I'd say for the Green Book, one of my favorite um, sites was Murray's Dude Ranch. And it was an old, it was in the Green Book in the early deck, I mean, in the 30s and up to the, the 60s. But it was a great, um, it was in Victorville, California. It was in the Mojave Desert. Uh, which is Southern California. And it was a dude ranch. It was a Negro dude ranch that um, all the stars would go there. Joe Lewis, the boxer and his entourage would be there. And Pearl Bailey bought it in the 50s. It was owned by a black family, the Murrays. Um, but it was one of the first places where black and white children swam together in the country, in that part of the country. Um, it was a real, uh, yeah, it, this, it, it was very popular. It was on the cover of Ebony Magazine. It was in, there was a big article in Life Magazine about it. Um, and it was a place where most Black folks just didn't realize they'd ever have access to a dude ranch. And the fact that it was in the Green Book, you know, is very exciting. The fact that we can resurrect all these, you know, all these archival photos and I actually have pieces that I've been, when you go out there now, there's nothing left, it's, but at least it's just land. It hasn't been, you know, turned into a mini mall or anything. Um, although there is encroaching uh, development happening right across the street from it. So I don't know how much longer we're going to even just have that land, but I've been out there many times just digging around in the dirt, um, looking for any old artifacts. And we have found some old, you know, springs from mattresses and, little pieces of tile from bathrooms or kitchen tile, um, horseshoes, things like that. Um, and they are on tour with this, the exhibition. So you can go and actually see some of these artifacts from Murray's Dude Ranch. So I'd say that's my favorite. 
I love that. I don't think we've ever had, we've done 170 plus episodes. We've never had a dude ranch. And so that's <laughs> yeah. a, that's, a, that's a perfect one. And a, and a great way to end this conversation with such a unique, unique site. Um, it's just so fascinating to talk with you and so appreciate to have you join us and share some of your information. Um, encourage people to pick up the book. The link um, to purchase the book is in the show notes for this episode, as well as the link to uh, your website, um, and uh, I meant it. We should, we need to have you back once the the app is up. We'd love to talk about that. Well, thank you. It's been such an honor, and I really appreciate the interview. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. This episode of PreserveCast is brought to you by Tolson's Chapel and School, a National Historic Landmark in Sharpsburg, Maryland. Built in 1866 by free and newly freed African-Americans, the Methodist Chapel doubled as a Freedmen's Bureau school from 1868 to 1869, and the county-run Sharpsburg Colored School until 1899. To learn more about this fascinating story and unique heritage, please visit Tolson's Chapel at tolsonschapel.org. That's T-O-L-S-O-N-S. C-H-A-P-E-L dot O-R-G. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.